Good morning, church. Delight to be with you. Thank you very much for coming. Um, we're continuing a study of Revelation. So I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Revelation right about almost close to two-thirds of the way through. Isn't that good news? So you can turn open to Revelation chapter 16, if you would. It's the last book in the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible. Um, again, we're just really very, very grateful that you would come. If you are needing to catch up on the previous 15 chapters, you can go online with us and kind of listen to some of those. Um, I'd also encourage you to connect with one of our small groups. We've got a lot of small groups that are doing Bible study as, as it goes, so you can connect with that. Or you can connect with BSF that's starting their study of Revelation, and there's several different Bible study fellowships that are doing that. I'm also told that the Awana High Schoolers are going to be going through it, right? Yeah, Jim's going to be teaching through that. So if you can't make any of the rest of them and you want to learn from them, then you can catch Jim's teaching. That's starting in uh, January, is it? Or sometime the first year? Somewhere around there. So talk to Jim. So um, all those dive deeper into this really great book. So here's where we're at in the story to catch up to speed. The end of evil is very near. Um, the great day of the Lord that's prophesied in the Old Testament repeatedly and again in the New is approaching fast. And as I mentioned last week, God is committed to wage war against all that's wrong, against all that's evil, against all that's broken, and win. That's good news. All right, um, that God is going to be victorious and he's going to make all things that are new all, all things right now currently that are devastated and broken and wrestling with the consequences of sin, he's going to heal them and make them new. But before that happens, there will be days of incredible consequence and cataclysm and war in this world. And God does not want you to be surprised by that or taken aback by that. But he has a plan for you, a plan for you to be prepared for that and a purpose for your life, even right now, that as you see what's going to happen in the future, as God has already mapped it out, you know how to live your life now. I was talking with some friends of mine right in between services. You get, second service don't get these, I mean, first service doesn't get these stories. But I was talking with the, the, um, these friends of mine who went to, just got back from a place where they were trying to be light in the middle of a place that's really evil. In the middle, they were working out their life to just acts of kindness in the middle of a really dark place where sex trafficking and drug abuse is just rampant. And they intentionally took some vacation time and stuck themselves in the middle of that place so they could be a light. And if you don't get anything else from the message, listen to this. Um, God's judgment is sure and it's coming. But he has a purpose for you, for me, for the church, and that is by his kindness and the kindness he's working out inside of our lives, by his grace to reach people, to bring people to himself. This week, even in the middle of our culture that wrestles with all kinds of darkness and evil, obviously a lot of it that we don't even see, that we have a role to be the light. So Revelation 16, today's passage gives us an overview of what's going to happen at the very end of time. So 16 happens, it's the last judgments of God, the seven bold judgments, called the bold judgments. And then in chapter um, 17 and 18, we're going to see kind of a focus on a part of that judgment itself, and that'll 
kind of give us a deeper understanding of what's happening in the big picture given to us here in Revelation 16. And Revelation 19 is about the victory of Jesus. And then we're going to see the, the end of things as it unfolds. So, um, so today is the story of the final judgments that come in what's called the Great Tribulation. And these are the final judgments that God pours out on all the remains rebellious and evil. And before we dive right into the text, I just want to say that I really agree with uh, the commentator Craig Keener, who has said, many people today don't like to talk about divine judgment. In fact, they don't want to hear it. Like, I don't like to hear it. How many of us today came to church hoping that we'd be able to listen to a story about judgment, God's wrath, right? I didn't see anybody, okay? Um, So I hate to disappoint you, but that actually is what we're going to be thinking about because it's right here in God's word, and this is promised blessing for us to consider it deeply. And his point is that in their view, that's not what God is for. God is not for judgment. But, Keener says, Santa Claus theology can't cope with the reality of suffering and evil. I like that line a lot. That is, a God who just looks like Santa Claus to us, he just gives good stuff, and we get to get good stuff, and that's the end of the story. That doesn't really deal with the issue of suffering and evil that we see in our world, that you see presently in the midst of your friends and your family, the world that we live in. To make God kind, Keener says, but never firm, is to deny his omnipotence and his lordship. Facing hardship without the assurance that God has a purpose and will ultimately conquer all that is evil, it leads to fatalism. It leads to fatalism. But listen, men and women, we're not called to that kind of life. We're called to be people of hope in a world that doesn't have hope, in a world that just sees, really, if they understand the plan of God, that if they continue in their rebellion and their lostness, it's all just dark, and it's all separation from God, and it's all just judgment. There is no hope in that. But God wants us to live in this great hope that he has a future, and it's a good future for us. And we weren't designed to live in a world like our culture accepts now of moral ambiguity. That this popular worldview that expresses itself in the denial of moral absolutes, the refusal to accept the concept of absolute truth and goodness and righteousness, it leads someplace. That's the world we live in, right? People don't feel like there's moral absolutes. But it leads to a place where everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. Kind of like Judges, right? Reminds you of those you know your Old Testament and those to the days of Judges. But the issue with that for everyone just doing what's right in their own eyes is everyone doing what's not right. That's where that leads. Current culture tells us that there's no absolute truth. And there are all kinds of shades of gray. And that evil is relative. But let me be really, really clear here. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's clearly not what God wants us to know. It's simply a means to justify sin and evil, our own brokenness, to say there's all kinds of gray. Actually, God wants us to know that when we hear it and when we're tempted to buy into moral relativism, 
He wants us to know where it comes from, where that kind of philosophy comes from, is birthed from. And it's not clearly from God. The message in Revelation is that God defines morality and acts decisively against all that's evil. And there are clear moral absolutes. There are some things that are always good, some things that are always bad, and we are not, you and I, are not the final arbiters of that. God is, and he will act. He is going to act against all that is evil, and evil will be absolutely abolished. And that's really actually a word of great hope for us, a word we can live in with confidence that justice will reign one day. But what does that look like at the end of time when God holds all accountable and brings his justice to bear and conquers evil? Revelation 16, starting in verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Last week at the end, if you remember, there was a scene in Revelation at the end of Revelation 15 where the temple in heaven is filled with smoke, the glory of God, no one can approach. So the voice coming from the temple here must be God himself, and he's commanding his wrath to be finished. There's an end of it. It's not going to continue. There's going to be an end, a final thing. And this is what it looks like, the overview of what it looks like. And you remember that I said that the wrath of God is not only necessary, but it's actually good news for those of us who have accepted the grace of God, who have received it and followed Jesus because it accomplishes something we should be longing for and hoping for and praying for. That is the end of evil. When we see in our world evil happen, we should not be satisfied or complacent. We should be praying, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. This is broken. I don't want to see this. It's wounding and devastating so many people. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So the first of the last seven judgments comes and is directed for all those who align themselves with the Antichrist. If you remember the story of Revelation, if you know it a bit, people intentionally chose to be deceived, and they followed Not God, but they followed the Antichrist, this beast as it's pictured in the book of Revelation. And they turned to worshiping this Antichrist, a large portion of the world's population. And they received a mark. And in consequence to this comes this first judgment where they, on their mark, receive and suffer painful sores. It's a mark of the beast that infects them. And it infects them externally. They've already been infected internally in their rebellion against God. Their heart had become corrupted with false worship and it resulted in physical pain. So it's a particular judgment that's aimed at false idolatry. And um, it's convicting, isn't it? This is, this is actually a message that's going to be yeah, getting under our skin a little bit and intended, I think, by God to bring conviction because it's so easy to worship things that are false, isn't it? Even for those of us who have relationship with God and have decided to receive Christ and his grace, it is so pick and easy to set other things up as priorities, as even idols, our finances, our resources, our job, our family, our relationships, our aspirations. All of them can become false idols for us where we can spend more of our time thinking about, more of our investments aimed toward, more of our heart aligned with these other things than God himself. 
and we become idolaters in this. So God is acting against idolatry here. And whenever we engage in worship of false idols, it corrupts and infects us. And that's the message from this first judgment. So these people bear the mark of the beast and all of a sudden they get all these boils on them. It's pretty gross, right? When we start prioritizing the things or people before God and God becomes less and less of a priority for us, it becomes a target for God's judgment and wrath when our hearts betray God. So can I ask you a crazy question? What would happen if in your instinct, in your fallenness this week, if you decided to be a false worshiper, you put something else above you, maybe it's an, your academic or your job achievements or your reputation or whatever in front of God, and all of a sudden you started breaking out in boils. A gross thought, right? So what would you do in response to that if that happened to you? Well, the message of scripture is you probably wouldn't stop. You would think logically, right, that if all of a sudden I started going this direction, that all of a sudden boils broke out, that I would get it. It would like be, okay, I get that, God. I'm going to turn back to you. But what happens in this chapter is that when this happens and people start suffering under the judgment of God, they just dig in and get more and more bitter. When God judges... It doesn't bring people's repentance. They just get mad at God. They start blaming God. Have you ever experienced this? Maybe when you were a kid, um, when you did something and your parents, got, you suffered the wrath of your parents and it was clearly your fault, but you did something and you suffered the consequences. What happened? You say, oh, mom, dad, you're so right. I totally deserve that. Let me please just humble myself before you. How many parents experienced that this week, right? No, instead, you start blaming your parents for how bad they are. That's, that's our depravity speaking. That's our fallen human nature to blame others. And that's what happens in this chapter. This judgment, see, it's not about correction. It's about justice. The people who choose intentionally to leave God and give their allegiance to the Antichrist, they experience the pain of their choice. And the second angel, verse 3, poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So there's this extreme red tide or whatever happens and affects everything in the sea. The language here leave some ambiguity about the target of the sea. We're, we're not sure whether it's the Mediterranean specifically, Mediterranean Sea, or whether it's all the seas. But what we know with certainty is that there's massive devastation and death. The pouring out of God's wrath affects the entire earth, and God is preparing to make all things new. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard... The angel in charge of the water saying, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, and the missing phrase is, who is to come because he already has come. For you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets and have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, when you kind of feel the, 
you know, the weight of these two judgments, the second and, and third bold judgments, you might think, man, that just seems so unjust. I mean, it wasn't like the, the, you're blaming the fish. The fish are the ones that are suffering right here and all the things that are in the sea. Why would God affect what seems innocent? The seas and the rivers and the springs and all that are in them. Is God some kind of anti-environmentalist? Or is God just overreacting with his judgment and wrath and being random? And I think these questions, as we kind of process them and think about what's happening in the text, they're why we hear immediately in the text this defense from heaven of God's justice and his action. The holy God who has now come to earth is dispensing judgment, and he's giving people exactly what? What they deserve. But how can that be? How can that be just and true, what's happening here? The Bible makes the case that truth and justice are not relative concepts. Like we don't make it up what we think is just and true. God does. And they are intrinsic to the nature and to the acts of God. His justice is intrinsic to who he is. That evil is real. And in the context of this judgment, people had slaughtered all these followers of Christ. They were the innocents. And what God does is he surrounds them in a haunting and inescapable way with their guilt. All the places they look to, they see blood. And they're reminded of what they've done. Their unjust bloodshed becomes inescapable. It haunts them and endangers their life. And with every source of water, there's a reminder of their guilt. And God's ultimate restoration still includes this judgment. Now, listen, God is the one that created heavens and the earth. And in his plan, in Revelation, he's going to restore things better than they ever were. He is actually the ultimate environmentalist. But in one sense, God is taking what we have done to the created order through our sin and rebellion and evil to damage the environment. And he's going to turn that back as a plague, as a judgment against people to see how wrecked they are. And then he's going to make all things new. It's part of his justice and how he's acting here. And it's really sobering, actually, to think about this. It's not just the people in Revelation at the end of time who deserve the wrath of God. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible tells us is that you deserved it, that I deserved the wrath of God, that all people bear this judgment. We, we every one of us, like even the most innocent person that you can see here today deserves it. And yet God in his grace reached down and said, yeah, but here's mercy. I have, I have a plan where you can receive mercy, where you don't get what you deserve. The Bible says that the cross of Jesus Christ was about him bearing our sin on his shoulders. And by his stripes, those wounds that he took on were healed. He took on the wrath of God on himself, on that cross for us, so that we wouldn't have to bear it, but we have to receive that. He who knew no sin was sin on our behalf, Scripture says. He became sin. He took our death penalty. So the question is, will we receive the grace of God and his mercy and live in it, or still walk in rebellion against him? The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. 
And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So there's this massive sun flare or whatever, however God pulls this off, and God turns up the temperature on earth, and global baking occurs, and, and people are incredibly uncomfortable, and you would imagine people would say, oh Lord, have mercy, please, have mercy, and how can this be repaired? How can relationship be repaired? How can we turn to you and you turn off the heat? But that's not what they do, is it? No, instead they dig their heels in deeper and say, we will not repent. And they'll start just spewing off cursing God. Like that's going to help their circumstance. It's an indictment of our broken humanity, blaming God for all this evil instead of taking responsibility on our own self for our own evil, to turning to God finally and saying, you know what? That's my fault. That's me. That's the beginning of when a person comes to faith in God, when actually we recognize that sin exists, evil exists, and my rebellion exists, and I own it. I say, that's, that's mine, and God, I need your forgiveness for it. That's what leads to health and relationships when we own our brokenness, our own sin, our own devastation, Right? But no person comes to God until that happens, until you take that step, until you say, that's on me. That's my fault. It's my sin. God, I need you. I don't know of a person, I've never met a person who has a great relationship with God who hasn't come to that place at one point and said, I am that. I'm broken. I've sinned against you. I need you. We don't, we don't come to that place of relationship with God or his forgiveness by our own acts, our own great acts, the things that we have done to impress God. We come to it broken and humbly before him. And that's the point. But these people, they just dig in. They, they will not turn and give God glory. They, they won't. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people nod their tongue in anguish. There's a gross picture, right? And curse the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. It's a picture of what happened in Egypt, right? This darkness in the land. That happens at the end of time where all of a sudden everything's dark. I believe it's a very physical picture of what happens, but I also believe there's a spiritual metaphor going on here, and it's really critical that without the light of God, there is only darkness, it's talking about spiritual darkness. When I do not repent, I'm stuck, I'm lost, and there's no way out, and I'm just, it's just this dark, oppressive place. And that's what happens over the course of the earth, and in response, people escalate their cursing and refuse to repent, and they're mad at God, and they're in pain, and they won't step out of pain. It's this cycle. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up and to prepare the way for the kings of the east. We're not sure where those particular kings are, somewhere east of Israel. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan himself, and out of the mouth of the beast, as we've seen before, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirit-like frogs. Just a weird picture, right? I don't know why the frogs were included. Not sure. 
For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So all these nations are brought through deception to fight, and they're going to fight against God. They're all deceived in it, and they assemble for battle. And what's the day named? It's not the day of man, right? It's the day of God the Almighty, because he wins. He's victorious in this. And then there's this parenthetical statement in verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they, that is all these armies, assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Sixth judgment begins, and it seems pretty benign compared to all the other crazy things that have happened, right? So originating in eastern Turkey, the Euphrates, it flows through Syria, if you know the region a bit, and Iraq, and it connects with the the Tigris into the Shat al-Arab, which is right there in in the Persian Gulf. And it's approximately 3,000 kilometers long. And it is the vital source of water in the region in the Middle East. And that's significant because the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment um, sponsored by NASA and the German Aerospace Center notes that in this basin right now, fed by the Euphrates, it is, it's losing groundwater faster than any other place in the world except for northern India. The loss of the Euphrates, see, would spark issues including water wars and widespread crop failure throughout the Muslim world. And you think we're in trouble now, right, in the Middle East. But here in the end, the Euphrates dries up, and we're told that it's a precursor to preparing the way for this climatic battle and ignites this powder keg that Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist have in their agenda to bring people to fight against God in this place called Armageddon. Megiddo, that's the the origin of that word Armageddon, is in a region that frequently is associated in the Bible with decisive battles. You remember, if you're an Old Testament scholar, Norm, right? That uh, Deborah fought Sisera in Judges 5, and Gideon fought the Mennonites, or the Midianites, not the Mennonites, the Midianites, <laughs> Judges 7, and Pharaoh over Josiah in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And it's a place of end times mourning in Zechariah chapter 12. In the midst of this activity, God issues this warning. In the middle of this great event that's happening, it's a climatic event, God issues a warning to all mankind. That's really interesting, isn't it? Here's the warning that he's going to come back like a thief. It's going to be totally unexpected. All these people deceived, and God is going to end things in a very unexpected way. And he doesn't help because God, God doesn't want us, and he doesn't check our appointment calendar for the day when it happens. He's going to bring it in an unsuspecting way for us. And here's the warning. Don't get caught with your pants down. That's what the Bible says, right? I'm not, don't blame me for what it says. Like, don't get caught and exposed and embarrassed about this because here's what's happening. I've already told you in my word it's going to happen like this. Here's, you have the general scheme. You don't know all the details. You don't need all the details. Here's how God's judgment is going to happen. Don't get caught like this without coming to me. 
And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. This is, this is it. And here's the end of all things. Until God makes things new. The end of his judgment. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. Talking about Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great. We'll talk about that next week. To make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God, not the ones that got hit with the hailstones, because obviously they couldn't do that anymore for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. In the middle of this great climatic final judgment, people still do not turn. Finally, it's the end of judgment, and it's cataclysmic. It's bigger than our imagination. It begins in the air, and we might be wondering why. Ephesians 2 tells us that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So it begins there. Is this describing some kind of like nuclear warfare released in this enormous cloud of radiation upon all the earth so it's all poison? I have no idea. It doesn't say that, so we can't immediately assume that. But we can be sure that what God is going to do is beyond the scope of what we've ever seen before in terms of his judgment. Now, Jerusalem is split into three parts. And actually there's a description of this all the way back written in Zechariah 14 where the prophet tells us that the Mount of Olives will be split in half and part of it will move to the north and part to the south and there will be a great valley created in between. And from other scriptures, we can learn that the topography of the whole Israel will be changed. And at this time, we're told that God also judges Babylon the Great. It's the city that represents the false church, the worship of the Antichrist. And we will see that that judgment happens in the next couple chapters. This earthquake is accompanied by this horrible hailstorm and there's this terrible judgment of God. And according to Jesus, men's hearts will fail them for fear at seeing the things that are coming to pass on the face of the earth. A further description can be seen in Ezekiel 39. Here's the good news. This is the end of judgment. That's the end of it. So breathe a sigh of relief. John's going to pick out a particular scene as he continues this revelation in the next chapter. In chapter 19, Jesus will reveal himself as seen by all the world and appear in power and great glory. So, what do we make of that kind of chapter with this, like, heaviness? That's heavy, right? Does it get heavier than this, I don't think. What's God trying to say to us by all this? Is this like this freaky Halloween story that I'd spin out before Halloween comes this week? Or is this just a vindictive God going off, just mad? Does it really matter to us? Really? Is this really going to happen? Here's the deal. God's good word promises that these things are going to come to our world. And it's not about vindictiveness or arbitrary anger. And it matters because a thoroughly good God will judge. And it matters because we are called to be people in the middle of evil that bring grace to this world. 
It's going to be fearsome for all those who reject him. But that doesn't have to be our story. And it doesn't have to be the story of the people that we care about. That God has placed us, surrounded us with, that we can be a witness to this week. There is one point repeated several times in the chapter. The judgment does not produce repentance. God's judgment does not produce repentance. How many people do we see turning, oh God, I see you and your power and your sovereignty and your judgment. I'm going to come and return to you and repent. Nobody does. That's not what judgment is about. It's about accountability. And it's about the cleansing and the healing of all that's evil. See, judgment doesn't do that. It can't. It's never intended to. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 4, Do you not know that God's kindness, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? That's what leads someone to want to follow Jesus. It's that they understand, maybe for the first time in their life, that God really actually does love them with all their junk, with all their rebellion. And he calls them to relationship. He tells them, listen, it's about grace. All you have to do is come to me. You don't have to keep following your own path that's destructive. You can turn to me, and it's my kindness that will lead you to repentance. It's our kindness as we live out the kindness of God among our friends, among the people that we care about. That's what's going to lead people to repentance. Not this great argument that we can spin off, some great apologetic, or not some condemnation that we can pour on people or tell people, you're going straight to hell and God's judgment. That's not going to turn anybody, right, to say, oh, yeah, I want to be a Christian. No, it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. It's not judgment that changes people's minds. They're just going to get more stubborn and more set upon evil. But it's grace that changes the heart. So the reason this chapter matters to us and everybody that we know is that it reveals the future of the world. And that future is harsh for those people who deserve judgment. And it's certain that God's judgment will come and has a purpose. It's going to be to remove all the evil. And it's going to cleanse society. And judgment will enable a new beginning to come. But that's not going to change people's minds. For that, we have to look to the grace of God. And we, those of us who receive the grace of God, have to be the living example of the grace of God. Here's the grace of God. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve the judgment to come. But in this great mercy of God who loves us and wants all people to come to him, he says, I have a way out of that. Here's the lifeboat. Jump in. You don't have to jump in. You can live in the midst of destruction and devastation of your own sin. Here's the lifeboat. You can jump in. It's going to make you trust me. I've got this boat, and I'm going to steer this boat, but you've got to trust me to get in. You have to actually believe in me, to place your trust and faith in me and what Jesus Christ has done for you on a cross to take your punishment. If you trust that, if you believe in me, then you, Scripture says, will be rescued, will be saved. Jump in and start following me. Stop going your own way and do the thing that these people didn't repent, that is turn around, do the 180, receive me and come to me.
place your confidence there and start following me. That's the whole story. It's as simple as that. And when you tell your friends about the grace of God, that's going to be the compelling thing that will draw them into relationship. And that's what you're called to do this week, men and women, to live in the grace of God, to pour out the kindness of God on people. That's what's going to draw people to repentance. And know that what God has in store is not evil. It's the conquest of evil. It's the victory over evil. And yeah, it's, it's hard what's coming. Judgment is going to come. And that's why the text is so hard and we wrestle with it, we grapple with it. But God has this great purpose is to cleanse and to bring a new heaven, a new earth from the brokenness that's here, from all the brokenness of our world and to cleanse it and to make it new. Let me pray with you if I might, please. Father, um, Father, I, I pray even though this passage is weighty, it's heavy, it makes us wrestle with the issue of judgment to come and even question at times, how could you act this way? I pray that we would be confident that your character is right and true and just, that you'll always act that way. We praise you, Lord, that you have made a way that we don't have to worry about that or be insecure in it, what will happen to us that we can trust your promises are just as sure and true. Your promises that if we place our faith in you, our confidence in you, if we turn to you, leave our own wreckage behind and seek you, that we'll be rescued, that we'll be saved, we place our faith in you, that you will make us new. And God, I pray that, that we would live in that confidence and in the middle of a world that is struggling with evil and suffering, that we will be a light, that we will live this world this week pouring out the kindness of God to a world that just longs for it, needs it so badly. In Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of his spirit, we seek to live. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.